What's going on, boys and girls? We have a terrific episode of Two White Lights for you today. It was the first Angelo Free podcast in Two White Lights history, but don't you worry, because the guys at Powerlifting Now were here to save the day in a coaches roundtable discussion and give you a little sneak peek of what to expect from Powerlifting Now. If you guys haven't followed them on Instagram and signed up for the subscription, make sure you do that. They are some of the best coaches in powerlifting. Steve Denovi hosted the episode. Hopefully he didn't screw it up too bad. But also got Matt Cronin, long-awaited return for Matt Cronin on Two White Lights. And, of course, two familiar faces, Marcellus Williams and Sean Noriega, two unofficial co-hosts of the podcast. So we know how much you love these discussions. I'm going to get right to it. First, this episode is brought to you by Leftlar Bros. Ladies and gentlemen, go to leftlarbros.com and get yourself the best powerlifting merchandise in the sport. Look good from head to toe, on the platform, off the platform, in the gym, out the gym. They'll make you look good no matter what. Use that promo code 2WL15 to save yourself some money and make sure you're following them on Instagram. Also, make sure you are subscribing to Two White Lights on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, leave a five-star rating, leave a review as well, and also go to twowhitelights.com and get yourself some Two White Lights merchandise. And without further ado, here it is, Two White Lights. Ooh, baby, I like it, boy. Yeah, baby, I like it, boy. Ooh, baby, I like it, boy. Yeah, baby, I like it, boy. Shimmy, shimmy, y'all, shimmy, yeah, shimmy, yeah. Give me the mic so I can take her away. Both on the natural charge, bone for yards. Yeah, from the home of the Dodge of Brooklyn squad. Who take the beats on the score? Rain on the dollar dance, disco tour. Will you need to touch my skill? You got to put the one killer beat. And as promised, we have the Powerlifting Now crew here for a nice little coaching roundtable. Myself, the Oracle, Marcellus Williams, Matt Cronin, and Sean Noriega. And gosh, that felt good to do that intro. That's never been done in Two White Lights history by someone other than Angelo. I got to say the full thing, as promised. I feel really excited about that. Does anyone, does anyone else even care about that? Or am I the only one that's going to get really giddy, the fact that Angelo's not on here and I get full control of everything? And we can honestly say anything, blame it on him, and get him canceled, and he had nothing to do with it. I think your your like intro could have been executed a little bit tighter, but, you know. Matt, you're kicked out. Leave. <laughs> Drop no, from man, the I, I, I love Angelo. I wish, I wish he was here. I need to make that clear since a lot of people think I hate him now, even though I don't. I, I see Angelo like once a year, and I get – super hyped up and then the next 364 days of the year just like painstaking all right but yeah we got the first ever angel angelo list podcast and honestly the reason why angelo has been a bit busy lately i think he's actually got a new teaching gig that's been keeping him busy he actually had uh what was it cupcake night tonight that's the reason he couldn't do it <laughs> so uh i'm gonna be hosting a little nice little coaching round table um if it's not obvious we're having the Powerlifting Now crew on, one, because these are all favorites of Two White Lights, unofficial co-hosts and Marcellus and Sean. Sean, we didn't have you on all last year. I don't, did Dude, you lose your unofficial co-host license? I, I'm not going to lie. I was furious. I feel like this was your doing because before you joined, 
Two White Lights, I was getting double featured, triple featured on Two White Lights. Angelo would ask me to come on. And then as soon as you took, it was just like, all right, we don't need him on anymore. And I was, 2020. it was heartbreaking. It was heartbreaking. I was, I was a favorite on Two White Lights a couple of years back. And I feel like a stranger, honestly. I mean, 2021, we had you on plenty. I think the issue is Angelo beat you. Therefore, he felt superior, no longer needed your clout to be able to get episode views because he was now the second best 82 and a half in the USAPL. You know, I saw his story today where he was like one of my best feelings in, in powerlifting in his powerlifting career was pulling into second and I was going to let him have it, but I wanted to respond to him that he is never going to have that feeling again. I just want him to know that. Well, that's a good friendly rivalry where you guys can be civil yet also talk trash that I'm sure he's, he's thinking the same thing opposite. Uh, uh, yes. Because he has said it. He has, he has brought it up a couple times on the podcast, maybe. But yes, it's good to have an unofficial co-host back on. And then Matt Cronin, we actually talked about this in the last episode. The first ever Two White Lights episode I ever listened to was your interview on Two White Lights. I'd never heard of Two White Lights before. And then you were on and I listened to it. And that was the start of everything. Oh, it was probably like the least viewed Two White Lights episode in history. But it's probably also one of the best ones. Uh, I kind of just used it as a opportunity to like talk shit for like two hours and it was great it was awesome so it was a lot of fun being on uh obviously angelo's not here but i guess it's nice to come back to it three years later two and a half years later whatever it is i love listening to you when you're on podcasts matt I don't, you're you're a man of few words so when you speak i think everybody listens great Anytime Matt puts a post up on Instagram, I'm sharing it immediately. That used to be me when Johnny was like going through his dry spell of posting on YouTube in like the 2017, 2018 era where he'd make like one just like masterfully produced video every like 14 to 18 months. And I just had my notifications on. I could be in class and I'm just like, all right, I'm watching this now. Well, I appreciate you guys saying that. I enjoy being on podcasts a lot. I just, I don't think on the internet's, like I don't, I'm not competitive enough right now and I don't post enough stuff that is like inflammatory to other people to like warrant like uh, a super like high alert red, you know, flash and red lights podcast. So it's, you know, it's, it's few and far between, but you know, like the, the absence makes the heart grow fonder. So, well, I mean, talking about powerlifting now, I mean, if people are looking at it, looking at content creation, I think me, Marcellus and Sean are known for that. But I mean, literally what we're talking about is the reason we brought Matt on. Matt's not as known because he's a bit more infrequent. But I think we all know that when he does something, he has a gift of being able to basically uh, portray and talk about things that are complex in a very understandable manner. So I'm really excited for powerlifting now in general, but also getting to get more from Matt. So with that, I mean, we're doing this coaching roundtable one, because it's going to be, I think a lot of people love to hear from all of us talk about coaching and be able to answer some of these questions. But two, we're, we're going to do a little shameless plug. We got something starting up. Sean, you want to kind of give a little insight about what is powerlifting now, what people are going to expect, what's going to be included in it. Um, I mean, even kind of like uh, how this kind of came to be and what gaps this filled and then kind of what they can expect with the launch. Like when is this going to be available to sign up and when is this going to be available to consume? Yeah, absolutely. And this plug is, is fully shameful, by the way, it is not in any way a, a shameless plug here, but yeah. So powerlifting now actually uh, was birthed out of a conversation that Steve and I had a couple months back uh, for anyone listening. Maybe some of you attended, these seminars, but uh, the Corrupted Summit was obviously Steve, Marcellus, and a couple other coaches, and that was an event that they hosted at Corrupted Strength. 
Um, myself and my coaching staff hosted a couple events in Texas as well um, in the September timeframe. And Steve and I had gotten to talking about how the way that people consume informational content has changed drastically over the past couple of years where there's not necessarily a scarcity of information anymore. In fact, there's an abundance. And because of that, a lot of people don't have a real sense of urgency anymore to consume information. So a lot of the in-person stuff just doesn't get people excited. It doesn't get people engaged. And obviously it's it's a very crude method where you just have this like one-time thing where you show up with one presentation. It's obviously limited by everyone being there and having to consume it for a reasonable amount of time. Obviously a seminar can't go on you know, all day and all day and all night. Um, and we started talking about, you know, oh, you know, could we write some sort of informational, you know, textbook or something like that. And eventually we came to the conclusion that having something that's digestible for people on their own time would be a much more enticing uh, way to to provide informational content. And for us, uh, a way for us to continuously be able to provide content. And, you know, all of us here, on this, on this episode are all really good friends, all hold each other in very high regard as coaches. So Steve and I, you know, decided to, to pitch the idea to, to Matt and Marcellus and we got to work pretty quickly. And, and we also brought uh, Marshall on who runs the USA powerlifting Instagram page, um, you know, ran uh, Carolina primetime as well. And just like, you know, we wanted a, a fifth man who could help us in this, in this, in this process from the creative side of things, the logistical side of things. But Basically, what we're looking to provide to you guys is the best educational platform for powerlifting content. Um, the way that we would like to describe it is essentially the powerlifters library. Whether you're a powerlifter, a powerlifting coach, there's going to be a ton of information for you that's going to be relevant on this channel. And and kind of the problem statement that I came up with when you know I I you know I sat down with Steve and discussed this idea was like a lot of the 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 knowledge is is kind of circulating within the inner circles of, of coaches, right? If I told you, you know, okay, I need you to go uh, coach someone to a national championship or bring someone to the Arnold, it's like there are very few books that I could really refer you to that I feel like would equip you appropriately to do so. There's a lot of fundamental stuff out there that's obviously important to learn, um, but we want to give you a lot of the the specifics, the nitty gritty and, and case study type stuff where you can then apply it more generally. So powerlifting now, is going to be a subscri subscription-based online platform. We are uh, officially going to launch the 1st of February. We are going to have our early sign-up January 18th, where you guys will be able to sign up at a, a discounted rate if you are in early. And basically what the platform is going to be is it's going to be the Powerlifters Library. It's going to be an organized database where we have everything sorted by certain categories. We're going to have... Um, programming, we're going to have technique, we're going to have meat day, we're going to have nutrition, we're going to have specific case studies on athletes that we may have worked with. And that's all going to be sorted, like I said, by category and also be sorted by coach. And then at the end of every, um, well, I guess not at the end of every month, but kind of to, to round that all off, you're going to have a coach's roundtable where the group of us are going to discuss um, you know, certain questions or topics that you guys might be curious about. And you know, as incentive for you to to join the group, there's going to be a Discord group run by Matt where everybody who wants to pose questions can pose questions for the roundtable. If there are ever any periods of uh, time after the videos come out where you have questions, those are going to be addressed in the Discord. Um, but we're we're 
beyond stoked. I'm going to, I'm going to shut up in a second and, and give, you know, other people the opportunity to talk about this, but it is going to be by far the best quality information you could get, especially at the value that you're going to be paying for it. Um, it's, it's going to be incredible. I'm, I'm very, very excited for this and, and thankful to be able to do this with, you know, three of my favorite people and Steve. So, you know, <laughs> I mean that's fair. I mean the amount we have to yell at each other. It we, we have a we have a dysfunctional relationship. I'll throw. Out, I mean I'm gonna ask uh, Marcellus a couple things real quick too. But I think one thing maybe I missed it if you didn't mention it. On a monthly basis, you get the podcast as you mentioned, and then a video from each of us. That's the subscription based model. Um, a, a twenty to forty, maybe even longer. Obviously, I suck at making shorter videos. Uh, but you're going to be getting that every single month. Uh, and then Marcel's, maybe you can touch on kind of like the, the ideas we have of how that's going to continually like expand. Like we're going to start out in what we think is a, a way to really kind of produce really good content and then be able to continue to provide more and more value as we go along. Yeah. So essentially what we're going to be doing is like Steve just said, um, on the first of each month, starting in February, you're going to get a video from me. You're going to get a video from Steve, video from Matt, video from Sean. And each video will be covering a different topic. So that way it's not this thing where like, Oh, you got four videos over squat, you know, from all of us. So it'll be each cover a different topic. Maybe one of us is doing a case study. Uh, one of us might be doing something over programming. Somebody might be doing something over technique. One of us might be doing something over like, you know, a mental aspect of lifting. Um, and of course, as we mentioned already with the Discord, which actually is already currently available, so you guys can go uh, be a part of that right now. What we'll do is take different ideas from people, right? As far as like the questions, the discussions, and be able to use that to come up with even more topics to go over and discuss. Because we already each have a list of topics that we plan to cover over the next few months. But as something that, you know, Steve often has experienced and I've experienced, I'm sure even Sean, when it comes to creating content is you have a certain plan for what you're going to do video wise. And then you just have a conversation with a client or somebody that just sparks an idea of like, oh, wow, it's a great video topic and going from there. On top of that, what we also eventually plan to do is be able to bring on other coaches as well. So on top of, you know, getting a video from each of us, there might be, you know, once every few months, you might get a fifth video from another coach, maybe bring on someone like, you know, uh, Joe Stanek, for, for example, and let him cover a topic as well. And pretty much what's going to allow this to continue to progress is the fact that even though, as Sean mentioned, we're all very close friends and we all get along very well, we're also very different people, different backgrounds, different coaching experiences. So as we kind of talk and discuss, you know, these different things and put out these different videos, it's going to create a dialogue for even us to have more topics that we can eventually uh, cover as well. And in the future, we would love to eventually do things where maybe we all actually get together and do like some type of live stream video where we answer questions live and things like that. There's a lot of possibilities for what we will be able to do. And a lot of that's going to have to do with those of you who subscribe and kind of what you're looking for in terms of what topics you like to cover, what type of formats you'd like us to do things on as far as collaboration. Um, but yeah, there's there's a lot of possibilities with what we're going to be able to do. And like, like Sean said, the idea is to make it like the powerlifters library, because even right now, Typically speaking, if you ask them, like, oh, we're going to learn about powerlifting, like Sean said, maybe they'll suggest a couple of books, but usually be like, oh, go to Marcellus' channel, go to Steve's channel, go to Sean's channel. It's all like kind of spread out. It can be hard to keep track of everything. Um, so, with having all of this in just one source, it's going to be really uh, quick and easy to use. It'll be something like if you just want all the content over squats and you just type in squat into the search, you're going to get every video from all of us over squats. If you just want every, you know, technique video from Sean specifically, you can put that in for the keywords and you'll get every technique video that Sean has done. So it's going to be a really easy way to keep everything filtered and organized very well. All right. Well, 
I had some other things that I thought maybe we could talk about, but I don't want to go too long winded here because obviously people listen to two white lights. Uh, I, we did a, we did our shameful plug, but at the same time, we'll get into our actual coaching roundtable topics. The only thing I'm going to do, because I think this is going to come out by the time we're about to announce it, I'm going to give I'm going to give one plug and one little little tidbit of Sean. What's your first topic? Should we do you want to do we want to hint at that one? All right, let's do it. Since I've been getting asked for about three going on four years now, my first topic on powerlifting now is going to be the full how to arch video. I filmed the whole thing a couple days ago. I was at the gym at like five in the morning, so there's nobody there. And we're going to cover everything that you can imagine. Grip, foot, footwear, wrist wraps, all everything. Everything's in the video. It's going to be the best arch video you've ever seen. Yep. It also has uh, a clip of two Russian gymnasts having sex and how to procreate for genetic capabilities to arch really well. So yeah, correct. You, you added that in there because I thought that was one of the, the primary foundations of how to arch, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But you have to pay the premium powerlifting now gold signature subscription service, which is probably another, you know, $3,000 a month. So. As he drinks a Perfect. glass bottle of San Pellegrino. <laughs> I don't drink tap water, man. <laughs> I don't drink tap. Well, so I got the Pellegrino. I always drink Pellegrino, but my filter is like, it's broken. Like the other day I was drinking and I'm like looking at it and I'm like, that is not clean water. So. Gotta re-up. Oh, okay. Yeah. Hey man, it's two I'll for drink. two for two ninety nine, man. Two I'll, I'll do my diet, Dr. Pepper. We're recording at one, which is way earlier. Usually it's me and Angelo having a beer, but I'm not gonna do a beer at one o'clock. So <laughs> uh but yeah, we got Sean going how to arch. The rest of us will we'll we'll talk about what we're doing later. Maybe we'll do some Instagram posts and that will kind of get highlighted. But let's get into it. So we've got four to five questions here. We're gonna see how many we can get through because we all talk a lot and usually we we find ourselves only be able to get through a couple couple. One that I've had a lot of people consistently ask, I'm sure if you guys have done Q&As, everyone's asking, because probably if, if there's a model of training, like I'll call it the modern day West Side, where West Side, obviously, there is Louis West Side, but then there's so many permutations and variations of how people applied that. And it became something that so many different people in different countries came up with their own versions of it. The modern day is kind of the RTS emerging strategies. That's kind of like, I would almost call the modern day West side in the sense of like, we have, I, I, I know, especially in Europe, even Australia, um, that becomes like the primary model that a lot of people use. And then obviously RTS uses it. A lot of people in the U S do too. Um, they use a typically a static RPE approach. If it's an eight RPE week one, it's eight RPE week two, three, four, five. It, it's the same throughout as well as they, they typically follow like a higher intensity model, lower volume. That's for the most part, fairly different from what a lot of us do. I know for sure me and Marcellus, Matt and Sean, you can talk on it, but I think maybe you do, you two do maybe a, sometimes a little bit more static RPE. Maybe I'm wrong on that, but either way, static versus progressive RPE approach. So keeping RPE the same weekly or having some kind of linear progression throughout a block, maybe not even linear, just some type of progressive RPE throughout a block and kind of the pros and cons. So whoever wants to takes it, takes it, take that first, go ahead and roll with it. I'll jump on yeah. that first. Yeah, Meg. All right. So uh, I the short answer is it depends, but the factor is that it depends on – there's a couple things. It's sometimes lift-dependent for a lot of people. Uh, so I would say most of the time I favor more of a some form of progressive RPE model or something that's changing from one week to the next. Uh, how that's done could depend um, to be – talking about are talking about the more static stuff uh especially when we're talking about our bigger lifts of the week and things like that um i think there's a couple reasons that i'm not a huge fan of it in a lot of cases one i think that there's certain people 
and this could be a good amount of people who are actually just pretty strong, if you get them to actually touch a true like 8 RPE, say single or whatever the case is, multiple times within a block, uh, I'm, I feel like you're going to find that you hit that kind of peak and, and that regression pretty quick. And I think that you've, you've talked about this, Steve, people will oftentimes given a block where it's eight, or eight RPE across the block, maybe the first week is a seven, actually, and then it's a seven and a half and then an eight. And then it's a nine. And, you know, it said that at eight across the block. And they followed it that way. So they could have some form of progressive kind of model to their block. Because, frankly, from a perspective of enjoyment, I know I get my own training blocks and I look at what I'm doing in week one and what I'm doing at week four and start to think about, okay, this is where I think I can realistically start off. And here's how I'm going to climb. And just thinking about uh, the direction that I'm going to take the block uh, just is more exciting than thinking about like going in and hitting a eight RPE in the first week when I may not be as like physically ready as compared to uh, a week four or whatever the case is. So um, one, like I said, just to kind of sum that up, I don't think a lot of people can handle eight RPEs, especially on like a squat or a deadlift. And if we're talking like a single or a double or a triple multiple times within a block, if it is actually a true eight RPE and then leaning into that more people tend to uh, just kind of make it progressive themselves by just, I think human nature and just not wanting to kill themselves in week one and kind of wanting to build up to something nice in the, you know, whenever the last week of their block is depending on how long it is. So that's my kind of case against it. My case for it. Uh, you do have certain individuals that will respond better to higher intensity uh, approaches. You know, ones that come to mind are like say females and more specifically like lighter weight class females. Uh, I can think of a very good handful of females that I coach that um, their first week bench single is at eight and it remains at eight for like two or three weeks. And then it goes up to at nine for another one or two weeks or something like that. So that's not even static, but it's definitely more static. And I just think that's just by nature of like that person needing to touch that whatever percentage of one rep max or that relative intensity that often to just keep that skill, uh, that skill high and just be pushing them enough to actually move the needle forward. So, um, yeah, I hope that answered the question. Yeah, I think, I think I, I mean, I agree with a lot of what Matt is saying here. I, I want to like for a brief moment, just kind of simply summarize what, what emerging strategies is for anybody who's like not familiar, but um, I, I give a lot of credit to emerging strategies for how a lot of us have come to program for people, especially from block to block, um, because emerging strategies is in simple terms, doing more of what makes you stronger. Um, you know, the typical way that people used to periodize is you would work on very distinct skills for certain periods of time, usually training blocks, or maybe even if you followed a more linear periodization model in many years past, you would spend extended periods of times or multiple blocks training one skill set and then switching to another skill set and then switching to another skill set. And that would like comprise the training year. But emerging strategies is this concept where you come up with this weekly structure that you feel will be conducive toward top end performances. And then on each lift, you have a top set that is going to give you the most accurate reflection of your 1RM at any given point in time, which, you know, obviously we're not going to, you know, truly max out. So the, the method that's pretty stereotypical is like an at eight RPE single, where you're able to extrapolate what you'd be good for on the day. You run that same exact structure for however many weeks you measure the estimated one RM. And then whenever you peak would be the time to peak or number of weeks to peak. And then when you drop off, that gives you the, the confirmation that, Hey, it takes us this long to peak within that model. And even though none of us are using that approach religiously across the board, 
Um, I think all of us can agree that we very frequently will keep variables outside of intensity the same within a week. And if we're switching to another block, we're not making a discrete change to something entirely different. So I give a lot of credit to the concept of emerging strategies for that, because I think a lot of times when we see progress, especially for our stronger lifters, it is because we fine tune and come upon this fundamental structure for the week that works really well. And if we're ever making changes from block to block, it's a very fine tuned process. But like Matt said, especially for a lot of stronger lifters, you know, you're not going to be able to tolerate that intensity. So for myself, no, I'm not. I would say for 99% of my lifters, I'm not um, starting off with an RPE that high. Um, there are some cases where the baseline RP that I might start at for like a, a female lifter or a lighter female lifter might be higher than where I start off like a, you know, 100 kilo male, where if you were to plot like where the RP is going as a function of, you know, the number of weeks, it's going to look steeper for like a male lifter, maybe than like a, a 52 kilo female. Um, there's only one lifter I could think of that comes to mind where, his programming looks as close to emerging strategies as anybody's possibly could, which is my lifter, uh, Sam Young. He's a, uh, he's a PhD student at Hopkins right now, and he was a chronic overshooter for years. Like, he just ne never would listen, always would, like, just RP eight and a half, nine, ten himself throughout the block. And eventually I got him to just chill out and listen, and his training tanked. Like, he did horrifically. Once he actually started like following some sort of linear progression of things and we gave it a couple blocks and it, it didn't work. So we, we write it in a more conservative fashion, but he essentially starts off blocks going at eight for his singles and they just get better as the weeks go on. Like it, it's one of those things where the, the reason it works is that he's such a good responder to high intensity and most people aren't that way, right? You kind of need that need to leave them room, uh, to progress or room to grow. Um, but he's someone who has responded well to that. Another lifter that I used to work with David party is a pretty big, pretty strong guy, like 230 pounds squatted over 700. And he was the same way, like very high intensity responder. Um, but I think that all of us have kind of refined upon this already existing framework where now it's like, okay, we very much value the concept of pacing or time to peak that comes from the emerging strategies model. But because we know that pushing that top intensity as frequently as it would dictate, that's the point of that. That's the point that we refine. And for each lifter, we're trying to find, you know, the appropriate pace to peak them rather than just subjecting them to this RPE. Because even if they do start off, you know, like if you, if you, in theory, you know, someone could start off at eight and they're not prepared to take that single. And maybe it's, you know, 85, 90%. They could finish the block worse off despite not being exposed to 100% at the start of the block than if you just gave them like a much lighter starting point and gave them the opportunity to work up. So it's not even just the case that exposing yourself to, you know, 95 plus percent is the reason you didn't progress. It's that if you start too heavy too early, you might just not give yourself the opportunity to adapt every week and, and be at the end point that you could be at if, you know, you're like maybe Marcellus where I know him much more than I do and maybe even more than Steve has these very, very drastic ramp ups in intensity for a lot of his lifters where someone might start with a single at, you know, 600 pounds and finish the block in like the low 700s. 
Yeah, I'll actually, uh, I'll pick up on that. Actually, since that's a good segue, but yeah, exactly what Sean said. That's probably my. I agree with everything said so far. That's probably my main reason why I usually don't utilize it is because it's not so much where we start, right? It's more about where we end. Obviously, each session, each week matters to build up to where you want to be at the end. But the fact of the matter is, oftentimes, if you push too hard too early, you're shooting yourself in the foot for what you could have potentially done at the end of the block if you weren't so aggressive. Um, so I agree with all that. There's no need to really repeat those points. I will say a time where I will use static RPEs, um, but I will say it's not usually like out of eight, it's usually lower, is maybe on like secondary or a tertiary day. So I'll give an example where whether somebody benches three days a week, four days a week, five days a week, usually like that final bench day of the training week before they go into their next primary bench session, I like to use like a priming bench single. It's usually some type of variation, tempo, long pause, close grip, something like that, something that's kind of self-limiting that will let them get a decent load in their hands to prepare themselves for their heaviest bench day, but isn't so heavy to where it will hit performance on the heaviest bench day. And a way that we can go about that, besides limiting it by variations such as like two count or large or whatever, is also by just giving them a static RPE. Um, because what I've often found is like, if I'm like, okay, we're going to keep your RP on this, you know, tertiary bench single, like RP6, RP7 across four weeks, is that because that RP stays static, it doesn't allow them to push it too aggressively. But due to the fact that their fitness will probably ramp up a little bit with each week throughout the block, they can still get a little bit of load here and there. Maybe they'll increase by like two and a half kilos or, you know, it'll be the same load the first two weeks. They'll increase five kilos on week three and be able to maintain, maintain that for the next two weeks. So there's definitely spots where I can see where I would use static RP, but it's actually in almost the opposite way that, you know, we may traditionally see with RTS. I'm doing it to try to keep loads limited and keep that exertion lower. So if I'm using a static RP, it's usually like an RP six or seven, not an RP eight or more, just for the mere fact that, like I said, I'm trying to seek some type of progression throughout the week. I'm trying to have my lifters seek some type of objective low progression on those heavier primary days. So starting with a lower RP and letting it ramp up tends to work better for most lifters psychologically, as well as like Sean mentioned, you just get that better physical outcome in terms of being able to perform better. If I want someone to finish, for example, a block between 96 and 98% of their one rep max, but then I have them hit, you know, 93% week one, 94% week two, 95% week three. It's just going to be very difficult for them to squeeze out what I wanted them to at the end goal with the end range by the end of it. So um, I very rarely ever use static RPs, but when I do, it's actually usually to try to limit the load on a particular day more. It's usually like a secondary or tertiary day. Yeah. Something I just want to throw onto that uh, is when I was talking, when I was talking about my thoughts, I was just sort of thinking in the lens of like, the primary sessions per week where you're like really trying to, you know, push things along. I definitely do also put static stuff more so on the secondary and more tertiary things. Uh, but I also, a lot of times for some people who are a little bit more diligent with this, um, but for a lot of people who might try and progress everything, like if you have three squat days, they want to progress all three across the course of the block and it might work for like the first two weeks then you get to weeks three and four and they're just kind of torched, you know, because they're just having like three mediocre days versus like one really good one, one okay one, and then one where you like really kind of take it easy. I do like to provide some form of guidance for the progression. So it might be like, you know, this is your top set RPE, but cap it at this load. And it's the same load for two weeks on like a tertiary day. And then it goes up maybe just five kilos or 10 pounds or something like that for the next week. 
and then it remains that same weight for two weeks. So it kind of gives you a little bit of guidance for progression, but it makes sure that you just don't push everything and have like just that burnout happen too quick. So I'm glad you threw that in there and just made me want to kind of, I guess, clarify that as well for my own sake. So I'm going to try and not be too long-winded because honestly, I think this is probably eventually a video I'm going to do because I thought about this topic really in depth. Not just because of the things we talked about, I'm going to add a couple of things, but really trying to theorize like uh, the whys behind what we see physiologically with adaptation rates and do I want to start at a higher RPE or a static model? Because the benefit is in the ES model is that when you do a static model, the data is very clear. If you're doing an 8 RPE, a true 8 RPE every single week, the data of progression is incredibly clear versus a 6, 7, 8, 9 is a bit more subjective. I mean, especially when you're getting to those lower RPEs, it, it's very subjective in the sense that it, it's it's much harder to rate what is a five and what is a six. And I'm, I'm sure if, if any of you have ever tracked E1RMs, you, it's not uncommon for me to see like actually the E1RM go down through the block because someone tends to uh, underrate easy sets and not really have a good idea of how to rate a five or six. Regardless, getting into it and kind of touching on the bullet points I have and not being too long-winded. One, as Sean said, uh, before people are like, oh, all Steve, Sean, Marcellus, and Matt hate emerging strategies. No, we don't. I honestly think that emerging strategies is one of the biggest things that's helped to create a framework for me, even maybe even just as much reading into what Mike got that from is the Bonderchuk model. Um, the Juggernaut actually did a series from some coach in Canada who actually worked with Bonderchuk because Bonderchuk, I don't think, speaks English. So he's never really translated anything into English. Might be wrong there. But understanding where this all came from in the Olympic system that Bonderchuk did, absolutely love the model. There's so much to apply. It's just the only thing we're debating here is the difference between static and progressive RPE. Um, before kind of getting into the theorization of like the adaptations physiologically, the only other thing I want to throw out there that uh, no one mentioned is arousal. Um, is can someone maintain the same arousal level weeks one through four or five? And I think most people don't. Most people are going to enter week one, especially if they're feeling a bit detrained. They're not feeling as much pop. Subjectively, they just don't feel as good. The arousal level is going to be a bit lower and they're likely going to increase arousal as they go along. And that's going to change RPE ratings. That's going to change velocity. It's going to change a lot of things. So arousal is one of the things that plays into it too. And if, if anyone's ever watched my lifter psychology and video on YouTube, I talk about that a lot in that a lot of times you need to program for the, the psychology of the lifter. Uh, and, and fitting into the needs of how they how they go about arousal and adrenaline and focus because we have some lifters who are very just calm and they're the same every week they probably do better in a static rpe model because they do not have huge fluctuations in arousal um, versus the lifters that tend to get really amped up once they finally get that really heavy single um, they don't get very motivated when it's like a lighter weight um, and so there's a lot of there's a lot of factors with lifter psychology and arousal there but getting into the actual theorization behind it one uh, if you haven't watched my top set progression video um, and rate of progression, I'm not going to go through all that, but I made an entire video on that. But people progress at different rates. Um, I mean, just the theorization of it is if you were to do eight RPE singles, eight RPE singles for, for four weeks, you might have someone who progresses at a rate of 3%. You might have someone who progresses at a rate of 4.5%. There's different progression rates of each block at for each exposure. Um, and that plays into kind of how an athlete's going to go throughout a block, whether it's static or it's progressive RPE. With either model, that works. The difference is, and honestly, Sean's, I've said this all the time, but Sean's probably the one that I've heard say it first, is adaptation before overload. We cannot overload 
before we adapt to the stimulus. And there's some novelty anytime we, we, we have a new block. Even if the block is somewhat similar, we're likely coming into different rep ranges. There's changes to accessories. There, there might be some difference here, especially if we did some kind of washout or deload or wave load where there's some type of, of, of fatigue dissipation and detraining. We're coming into that block with uh, some reduced amount of fitness. So we're detrained and we need to readapt to the stimulus. And one of the things I've really thought about, and there's not a great definition here, is understanding people is if we understand the repeat about effect, how many exposures does it take someone to basically get to the point where they've gotten through that initial kind of like phase of detraining? Uh, I mean, a good example is if you if you if you haven't worked out in a month and you start working out again, how many sessions before you stop getting sore? Some people may get sore one session and they're great. Some people may be getting sore for two weeks because of the novelty of it and ramping it up. People are different with that repeat about effect and how many exposures it takes for them to adapt to that that initial stimulus. Um, some people right away, they're great. They may do better with a static model. Some people have a more elongated process. Sean is one of those. We, we find it usually takes about two or three weeks of him being a bit more submaximal before he feels like he can kind of ramp up and isn't detrained. And then we can really feel like we can push that also deals with kind of intensity factors and how he relates with intensity and fatigue, but taking that into play, <clears throat> I don't think anyone of us is going to argue that a higher relative, relative intensity produces some type of greater fatigue versus more submaximal intensities. So for let's say a, a, some lifter has a two week adaptation period, it takes two weeks to them to adapt, adapt to whatever the stimulus is, the volumes, the exercise selection, all that kind of stuff. I don't want to waste higher RPE sets inducing higher fatigue when the main goal of those periods and exposures is the adaptation process. I can get the adaptations through lower RPEs and lower fatigue, get through them through that period. And then once I've gotten them out of that detraining state and they're more, their fitness levels higher, I can then ramp up those RPEs and then get the most out of that overloading effect. Does that make sense? Am I describing that? Well, I think that's the theorization I've really come to of why I'm going to shift towards a more progressive RPE models. I do not want to waste fatigue, it, it, higher fatigue inducing work during that adaptation time. And everyone's different for the, the progression model they need for that and like how long it's going to take to adapt. And that's why we have some people who do three week blocks and some people who do five or six week blocks. The same with the emergency strategies model. Um, it, it's based off of that. But my biggest thing is I don't want to waste fatigue inducing sets, let's say, during an adaptation period. I want to wait to allow those adaptations to occur before I then do more higher intensity overloading sets. To add to that, just for a quick, Steve, I think we also have to consider the fact that, and I think it was you or Sean mentioned this too, but with the RTS model, when they do that, it's kind of more focused on higher intensity and not as much volume. Well, we all here know how important volume is for actual progression, right? Like the, the volume is a part of what gives us the adaptations to then lead to that overload. And I simply have yet to find someone who can push the intensity that hard, that frequently, where it's not having some type of negative effect on what they can then handle volume-wise afterwards, right? Um, I'm sure we all have clients where it's like, you know, even they have like their RP5, six top sets or whatever, where, okay, yeah, my top end right here doesn't feel very good. It takes time for that to come back, but their volume work is still going pretty relatively well. I would like to imagine that for a lot of those people, if you gave them an RP8 on their week one or on their week two, 
then the volume will probably be that much more difficult afterwards. So you're probably going to like see uh, a detriment performance in that aspect too. Whereas if you kind of ramp things up steadily, you still get that quality working with the volume. And then even when your fitness is higher on the top end and you push that RP8 around at the end, your fitness is high, but you're still able to handle adequate volume after that as well too. So I think also looking at how all these things work together as far as intensity and volume is also important when we're considering how we want to go about these exertions and the progressions of them or keeping them static. I'm just going to hop in really quick only because everybody's uh, points and arguments have been so clean. I don't want it to be uh, tarnished in any way by misrepresenting emerging strategies just because there's, I just want to clarify one thing is that it doesn't necessitate lower volumes. Um, Like the emerging strategies model does not, require that you're training at high intensities and then consequently lower training volumes. There are plenty of structures that they could have where like you're doing, you know, four sets of 10 on your squat or like five sets of four. Like there's no requirement that the baseline volume following the main work has to be lower. Um, That's something that, that Mike has mentioned is like very individualized and could look like a normal back down structure for what any of us have for our athletes. So I just wanted to, to say that really quickly so no one can be like, oh, you're re- misrepresenting emerging strategies or whatever to make your argument. So Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think the, are... the idea came from, if I'm not mistaken, I feel like I started seeing it. I wish I could remember his name. Um, there was a dude, and I believe he was from upstate New York. Um, he was a gym owner, I think, at one point, too. Uh, but I can't, his name is not, I can't figure, remember right now, but he was a really, really strong dude who like would cr- do crazy, crazy sets. Like, you know, however many weeks out from a meet, he would do 250 kilos for a set of eight as like a one Oh five lifter or something like that, or maybe like a 93. And then like, he would just get closer to the meets and just start to fizzle as like the linear linearity of like traditional programming would happen. Garazzo. Yeah, that's yes, exactly. Mike Garazzo. Yep, exactly. I remember like piecing i don't think it was like based off him but i remember he was like a very large focal point i think because a lot of people knew who he was and people were seeing that he's like oh he's two weeks out and he's doing this big set of eight or something like that um and people would like be like oh what's going on here and i think that was like what helped me piece together like what the idea of emerging strategies was to an actual person that fit that sort of mold and like was outside of the norm in terms of like response to a training input or whatever. So yeah, I mean, I'm glad you clarified that too, because it's really just all about like, no matter how weird or obscure or normal or whatever the case, like your training looks, uh, if it works for you, like spend your time doing that and figure out that, that time to peak process and that kind of like quote unquote, like golden microcycle in order to, uh, you know, create very predictable and, uh, repeatable like adaptations and progression and things like that so yeah i think we like steve said like sean said we've all gotten a whole lot from it it's just we've all taken our own kind of you know creative paintbrush or whatever you want to say um you know to it in our own coaching and we are still i know people who have been continue to dm me about me it is on the list to get mike on here to do a little round table with him and kind of discuss this uh because i really want to kind of have the discussion with him because that's going to give it due justice and be able to kind of go back and forth because again i guarantee me and mike are going to agree on more than we disagree about but we're just simply talking about the static versus progressive model um and i'm just hoping uh rts 
people and, and emerging strategies model people are a bit more understanding than conjugate. And then they don't come after us like they went after Joe Stanek yesterday for just simply talking about conjugate in any manner possible. So um, yes, Sean, that was good to pop in because we're not experts on it by any means, since I don't think any of us have ever been under an ES model. And honestly, we're just using that as an example because other models outside of ES use static RPEs. Uh, it's just that that's the most well-known. So we're using that as the example. And that's really what we're talking about here. So um, for the sake of time, does anyone else have anything they want to hop in or say, or do we want to hop into the next topic? I'm good to move on. Yeah, I'm bored. Let's move on. <laughs> yeah, are you eating popcorn, Matt? No, I'm eating these. No, that's got to be vegetables. No, they're, they're, they're uh, black garlic flavored mixed nuts. I thought they were going to so be a vegan version of popcorn, of course. I have dill pickle popcorn <laughs> in my in my uh, my kitchen right now. I can go get it if you want. Of that sounds even do. worse because it's pickles. <laughs> oh, so you're pickles. soft. Okay. I love yeah, pickles, man. Steve's little, you know about these Long Island boys. Yeah, Steve's got the little little sensitive tummy. Can't handle it. Moving on. <laughs> All right. I like this question because it made me think. I don't know if how much you guys thought deeply on it, and I honestly don't know. I'm gonna. I'm still kind of thinking. What skill do you think you need to improve to be a better coach? And I'm gonna say one off the bat that I think everyone is, could say. I'm gonna say it so that no one else can use it because it's the easy one that all of us I know would probably say we need to improve, but I want to go some, a different route and like truly think like, okay, like in the model of like what we're looking at biomechanics and programming, not even the soft skill. I, I think probably I'm maybe, I'm maybe biasing away from the soft skills, what we need to improve. I think one of the ones that almost any coach can say is being able to disconnect a bit from their business and the emotions of coaching. Cause if we care about our athletes, that typically becomes one of the hardest things is, is being able to disconnect at the end of the day and not carry the emotions of how the good or bad of our training, but outside of something like that, and maybe you can do soft skill stuff if you'd like to, I kind of was interested in kind of biasing this towards like, where do you feel like you need improvement in what we'll call it the, the hard skills of programming and biomechanics and where you think you need to improve as a coach. Well, I guess I'll take this one to start. Um, I would say one of the things that I feel like I can improve on and would love to improve on is uh, having a little bit more uh, of a kind of rigid system that allows me to be more on top of like when programming is due or when I have certain things coming up. Right now, like I use Google Calendar and whenever I finish a training block, like, you know, I make a note in like four weeks from now or whatever the case is, like this person's going to need programming around that time. So I have to take care of it or whatever. Um, but I'm always longing for a way to, uh, kind of streamline that stuff, uh, so that I'm just more on top of it. I don't, you know, make small mistakes or whatever the case is and, uh, just be able to spend more time, you know, doing what I know I'm good at and not have to worry so much about, you know, the organizational stuff and things like that. So I would say, uh, just figuring out better forms of organization over time. Uh, that's something I'm like always, always, always trying to do. I've moved my coaching system from, you know, Facebook messenger to emails, to Slack, to discord. Like I've gone all over the place just to try and find, uh, like the next best thing to, you know, improve that and not have to worry so much about, you know, the, Stuff that we don't worry, want to worry about, you know, just be able to just coach and do our things. Yeah, I'm going to I'm going to piggyback on that because mine is organization related as well, um, but more so in along the lines of like data tracking, um, because all of us, I'm sure at some point I know, Steve, you know, I obviously work with you, so I see what metrics you track in the sheets. And, you know, for each of us, we've kind of all tried our hand in trying to track a bunch of stuff. And then we realized over time, like what matters and what really doesn't. 
And I think that each of us has a solid command of our of our coaching skills where we can pick up on things really quickly just by observing the athlete and communicating with the athlete. But at the same time, at a more macro level, you know, I find myself whenever something is, you know, maybe, um, you know, has, has gone off the rails with an athlete or things are stagnant, whatever, um, you know, that kind of puts you in a bit of a scramble, right? Where you're trying to figure out how to course correct. And that is something where I think a, a more organized system in terms of data tracking with sheets um, would come in handy. And it's actually something that, so one of our coaches on our staff, Eric Larson, um, is also a, a computer scientist and he's all over the data tracking stuff. And that's something that I'm actually going to be paying him to do. Like we're going to be having a bunch of calls to try to come up with an actual framework and system for our sheets where we can actually track certain variables. Like we're basically trying to have like a, um, like one of the cool things that we're going to try to set up is like a, basically like a summarizing sheet where all the blocks that are like rated good blocks will be sorted by lift. And then there will be just like a summary tab next to each block of like what made that block good or like what metrics we might look towards. So if you ever get in a situation where you're like, fuck, like we kind of took a wrong turn somewhere and we don't really know where to go from here, you can kind of refer back to that. And maybe if you don't get anything directly from the summary tab, that's like, aha, you're able to at least have a set of like blocks that you could look at and maybe quickly be able to say, okay, the pattern recognition is, you know, you, you have a better, a better time picking up on, on what it is you need to change. I've always been like a very type B person, very, you know, unorganized at times. So that's definitely an area where I'd like to improve that can directly impact, you know, the quality of programming that, that athletes receive over the long term. So for mine, this is something I honestly I've been working on for a while now, is simplifying my system of movement. I honestly think I felt like I got so many tools in my toolbox when it came to biomechanics and technique that just like if you overcue an athlete, I was starting to overcue myself in the in the in the different types of things I would do in teaching technique. And it got to the point where I almost felt like I wasn't as good at teaching technique because I had too much to say. Like I just, I had so many things that were inputting in my head of different cues that work or, or movement systems or, or things I wanted to do that I just kind of need to start simplifying it. Um, and this is actually going to probably lead to the next question. So I'll kind of come back around to it, but I've been really trying to kind of simplify how I define movement and how I coach it um, to be a bit more organized there to, to, to take, if I have, I'm just using an example, if I have 10 different cues that are able to accomplish the same thing, how can, how can I be able to find a way to simplify that in a manner that I, I do not, I don't have to have 10 different cues to go for. I can kind of simplify those to something that works a bit more, uh, mainstream for my lifters, uh, which honestly is going to leads a lot to what is my first, well, I'll just say it now. My first video for powerlifting now is using movement constraints to fix technique. Um, being less about cueing and more about movement constraints to be able to organize uh, patterns and position for an athlete, helping them to self-align. Um, that's been a big thing I've kind of started to come back more to that maybe I got away from. Um, but yeah, I think that's one of the biggest things I've been trying to do is being able to simplify my, my system of movement. So I really had to think about it for myself just because in terms of like structure and organization, how I go about things. I'm very happy with how that is. Um, and I feel like in terms of even what you just said, Steve, like cueing people and keeping it more simple, stuff like that. I've, I've found I'm pretty good at adapting to my clients based upon, okay, I need to explain it to this degree for this one, or I need to keep it very simple for this one. Um, 
was actually something that Matt said the other day when we were recording um, the Pound Thing Now podcast, actually, that really made me think about it. And this, I guess you could say this kind of soft skill related, but then it kind of gets into more of the hard skills and stuff like that. I am very adaptable to my clients, but I need to get better at making my clients adapt more to me um, in the sense that even though, yes, I can take a client, like, for example, let's say there's a client where when they get feedback, they're very precise and concise. They tell me kind of exactly what I need to know so I can then make the best decisions possible for like, you know, how to cue them or program them or whatever. That works really well for me. Like give me the information that I need and then I can be very efficient with it. Whereas I have other clients where they might be a little more long-winded, send several memos, including information that doesn't necessarily really matter or pertain to things. But I let them do that because it's like, okay, well, it's on me to adapt to their style. So I'm going to listen to everything, filter out what I need to, address what I need to. I'm able to do that very, very well. But I can't help but notice that, hmm, but the efficiency and the quality of what I'm able to provide clients who do so happen to kind of be a little bit more in alignment with, you know, my, how I like to do things, it's just a lot smoother and it's a lot easier. And thus, I think I'm able to give them uh, an overall better, better service, right? So even though there's the, the end of like, oh, being able to adapt to different personality types and stuff like that, especially with as big as my roster is, is important. And it's one of these things where it's a balance, right? Like, I'm not going to make someone change their personality or anything like that. Like, I'll adapt to that. But if like not being afraid to tell a client, hey, man, can you start to be a little bit more concise with this? Or can you like send your feedback this way instead? Like like still, you know, in whatever capacity works for you, but can you kind of do it more like this? Not being afraid to ask, well, not even so much afraid, but like not putting so much on myself and being like, okay, well, no, I got to adapt to this. Like, I just take it as it is and, and make the most of it. It's like, no, let a client know, hey, you can do it this way. Let's see how that goes. And that way it'll be more efficient for me. We'll see what type of results we get. And if it's just very hard for you to adapt to that degree, then we'll meet somewhere in the middle. But I think that's something that would actually help me with my coaching a lot more because I will often, you know, have periods of time where like, you know, I'm listening to feedbacks of like that. And it's just like, man, this is a lot of extra work to go through all of this, just, to, just knowing that I already know the answer I need to give them, but I still have to go through all of this and see if there's anything that I'm missing or whatever. Right. So I think for me, just being a little bit more stern with my clients and like, Hey, Yes, I adapt to you. I adapt to your needs, but I need you to start doing things in this type of way or get a little bit closer to this specific type of way with how you get feedback. Um, so that way I can maximize your results better in a way that's easier for me. So I'm going to come back around to mine. And this is the talk about all of ours um, and the solution for how I'm going about it, because this is kind of a, a, something for coaches. And this is something that's going to be for all of us, too. I don't know if there's a single better way that I have progressed as a coach in my thoughts than creating content. And actually something that happened over the last year, and I kind of voiced it on Instagram occasionally, um, uh, we moved into a new house, amazing, but we moved into a brand new neighborhood with construction. So for over a year, I didn't make any technique-based videos because it was so loud in my garage with echoes of construction that I couldn't record down there. And all I did was programming videos. When I look back to 2020 and 2021, when actually the majority of my content I was putting out was technique-based videos, I felt like my thoughts were much more organized in what I wanted to do in my system of movement. And in reality, if I look back in 2022, I actually think I did really, really good in my ability to be critically thinking and analytical about programming. Well, guess what? I did a lot of videos and content of organizing my thoughts on critical analysis of programming. And so it actually has been a thing lately. And if you go to my YouTube channel, my last three or four videos have been technique based. And that has been not just for views or YouTube, that has been for me. 
that has been to help to organize my thoughts and creating systems. And one of my videos, I just, the two videos I just did were two of my simplest videos, but they were purposeful and Marcellus used one of them. I don't know how many people have reached out to me about the video I just did about my three-step deadlift cue and how much that's improved them. A lot of what I do of, of, of being able to fix things for myself as a coach is then creating content about it because it makes me have to organize my thoughts in a matter. Because if I'm going to put it out there into the world, it's got to be good. And it makes me have to teach myself of how I need to go about it. And so and it's even gone back to sometimes when I, when I don't know much about a topic, actually a topic I eventually want to do that I don't feel like I have a good organization of thoughts on that I think is really important is everything about the low bar rack position grip with position, everything that deals with it. Cause there's so there's actually, it's, it's an extremely technical, uh, idea of low bar rack position. There's a lot of intricacies in there between grip, between shoulder position, between retraction, extension, flexion, all that kind of stuff. I don't feel like I have a good enough understanding that I want to. So I know for a fact, it's something that I eventually want to make a video about because I will think that will help me and force me to organize my thoughts. Same thing that happened with high frequency bench pressing. I actually think I was pretty good at, at programming high frequency bench. I am better now because I was forced to do that for the corrupted summit. And I forced myself to organize thoughts into an hour long presentation. And it actually made me, in my opinion, better at programming high frequency bench because I did that. Yeah. I mean, I've, you guys always, you know, Marcellus and Steve specifically always, uh, you know, make fun of me for not being on YouTube as much anymore. And I, and I definitely agree with that. Uh, you know, if you're if you're put in front of the camera and have to present something quality, it it, it forces you to be better. Um, the way that I've kind of supplemented that that deficit has been the mentorships that I've been doing. Like, I, I definitely think that that has been something that's kept me sharp because I have to teach other coaches or I have to go over technical stuff with athletes. And I tell people that the 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 process that I have for all my mentorship stuff is like a very, cause like, if you think of like the, the PT, like physical therapy realm, right. It's like a very backwards sort of, um, you know, setup where it's like the way that they make more money is, is getting people to, to come back, which means that maybe you don't fix their, their pain in the amount of time or whatever. But I tell everybody that I, I do like the mentorship stuff with, I'm like, if it doesn't work, like I will continue to work with you after the call for free until it does work. And almost every time, like we figure out something programming wise, we figure out something technique wise, like immediately. And that's been like my substitute for not making YouTube videos, just like being able to teach coaches or teach other lifters. So yeah, I mean, I, I thousand percent agree with that. Yeah. And that's, that's also why I'm excited for what we're doing. Um, I know we keep going back to it, but why I am excited for what we're doing crafting now, because it's like, it's going to force me to, reinforce my thoughts and really clearly think about, okay, why do I do things in this way when you're making the content? But then also seeing the different things from you guys is going to give me different perspectives. Like, like I take a lot of pride in knowing that I have really watched every single one of Sean's videos on YouTube. I've watched every single one of Steve's videos, every single one of Johnny Candido's, uh, David Wilson's. I've watched all of those because I like having different tools. And if it's a topic where, cause it's very easy to be like, oh, he's covering this topic. I know about that topic, but listening to someone else's perspective on it can give you a whole different insight and be like, oh, wow. Yeah. You know what? I never thought about doing it from that perspective. And I can't, I can't even count the amount of times where, you know, I'm doing something for a client where it's like, huh, this is something that I've done in the past before, but the way I'm now approaching it is different because, oh, I just watched something from Steve's video or from Sean's video. And sometimes even just giving yourself reminders. Sometimes we, we keep learning so many different things that we kind of get away from certain things that we know work well. So I think it's, it's really useful for that as well. Have you watched the entire Demystifying series? Say again, Steve? 
Have you watched the entirety of the demystifying series? On from... your on your YouTube? No, on Matt Cronin's YouTube. Oh no. Awesome. No. <laughs> No, <laughs> no. There's, there, there's an there's an Instagram page with all of the different demystifying topics. That, that was like that's the the theme already. Yeah, yeah. So. People think. Well, hey, literally, hey, Matt, it's me. I have, I have watched all of your actual YouTube videos, Matt. So there you go. It took you all of 15 minutes, bro. Wow. Um, no, man, got it done today. Yeah, the demystified uh, demystifying Matt Cronin thing. Uh, like people in Vermont, like will actually think that's me. I've had multiple people be like, yo, what's up with your Instagram lately? And I'm like, oh, God. And then like someone – I had a conversation at the gym with someone, uh, I, I don't know, a couple weeks ago. And <clears throat> uh, I get a screenshot in my DMs of that person I was having a conversation with at the gym messaging the Matt Cronin Demystified account uh, being like, yo, man, just like following up on the conversation, like blah, blah, blah. And I was like, wow, this is crazy. <laughs> So, and if you don't know what the yeah, Macron demystified page is, like just it's it's nightmare fuel. Don't do it. Just stay away. I only found out that was a thing like two weeks ago when Steve brought it up. I didn't know that was a thing. <laughs> so I'm gonna I'm gonna put in one more thing before we move on to the next topic because not everyone should produce content and make YouTube videos. I, I I've taught when in, in coaches I've mentored that I coached, not everyone's meant to do that. I did I went to YouTube and did the content route from the get-go because I knew it was a strength I had. I knew that I was had a gift to be able to talk about and to talk about topics that are complex and, and make them simpler and understandable for people. It's something I've always been very good at. That is not everyone. Some people are not meant to be in front of a camera. That doesn't mean as a coach that, like I just said, if I, if I need to feel like I need to really simplify my thoughts and, and create an understanding of my systems, you don't have to put a YouTube video out, but you can create an outline for a topic to be able to get an understanding of it. So I think that's a drill or some way some, some coaches could, could go about it. If they don't want to make a YouTube video, they should still be able to do something, make an outline, make notes, cr cr write a blog, do something that helps to organize your thoughts. Cause I don't think you probably, if you've never done it, you don't realize how much that actually teaches you what you actually believe um, and organizes your thoughts in a manner that just makes you a better coach. I, I, I don't, I mean, I can argue that creating YouTube videos has been one of the best ways for me to be a better coach that I've, that I've done. Um, and like I said, when I stopped making technique videos, I feel like my ability to coach technique diminished. When I started making more programming videos, I actually thought I was better at programming. I, I needed to be good at making sure I do both. So when you said, when you said that not everyone should be in front of a camera, it immediately, immediately made me think of the uh, Scott Mendelson nutrition video. <laughs> I, I haven't seen that. Have you ever seen that, Steve? There's no, I haven't. It, it, is, <laughs> it is one of the best videos it's just this, on the internet. This blob of a man sitting in a chair, like telling you about like the way that you need to eat. And he's just like, salmon is the best. Salmon? <laughs> you gotta sit it to dude. It's too good. All right, I'll watch. He's, he's out here gatekeeping the YouTube fucking fitness community so he can just keep all the monetization to himself. Your brain is not in your body. It's above your body. <laughs> but yes, not everyone's meant to make YouTube videos, nor will be successful doing it. So leverage your strengths. If you watch my powerlifting coaching videos, business videos, I talk about leveraging your strengths. But all right. Well, per usual, we're talking like 20 to 30 minutes on each topic. 
So uh, we got three more. Let's just do one more. What do you guys want to do? Do you want to do optimizing technique for a lifter who's already strong or let them be within reason? Do you want to talk about uh, training over your weight class? Um, or do you want to talk about what to do if someone sandbags their accessory work? Let's do the technique one. If y'all are cool with that, we can vote. Matt, what were you going to say before Marcel's rudely interrupted you? <laughs> I was going to say not the technique one. I was going to say uh, the sandbagging accessory one. Well, it looks like Steve's going to have to be the tiebreaker because I was going to say the weight class one. Oh, boy. Oh, gosh. <laughs> I kind of want to do the weight class one. Let's go! No, 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 no. I'm not picking that one. Simply <laughs> to keep to give my opinion to keep Sean from getting too fat. But uh, what's going to help people more, Steve? That's what I'm thinking about. It, it, it's not the weight class one that has that has less carryover to people. It'll That's a good one to talk one. about. It'll be the technique one. Let's do yeah, the it's technique either the technique one, one or the sandbagging accessory work. Let's do the technique one because the sandbagging accessory work. There's there's some answers I could give, but the main one is stop sandbagging it if you actually want to be strong. If you're if you're sandbagging it and that's your issue, then obviously you're not wanting to work hard uh, or hard enough to get the full effect of what you want to do. So yeah, <coughs> excuse me. Should you look to optimize technique for a lifter who is already really strong or let it be within reason? Um, I'm actually going to, I'm going to semi start this one because I think I have a really good example. Um, I just started coaching Natalie Richards, um, one of the strongest females in the world. Um, per usual, every, every lifter who always gets a new coach, they say, I want to get better with technique. I gave her incredibly simple things to do. Incredibly simple things because I did not want to change much of what she did because she was already incredibly strong. And honestly, if you were to look at her squat and her deadlift in particular, I'm sure if she was to post that on powerlifting Reddit or not powerlifting, Reddit, let's say TikTok. I, Matt's the TikTok expert, so he can confirm or deny. I do not have the TikTok app because I'm a boomer. She has notable knee cave on her squat, and she has a very rounded thoracic spine, very rounded thoracic spine on her deadlift. Not an issue whatsoever. Did not want to fix either of those. On her squat, the only thing I wanted to fix was some slight change to her center of mass because she tended to shift forward. I only gave her one cue. I wanted her to look slightly down. Just, just a little bit. She, she tended to look kind of straight forward slash up. I wanted her to look just with a slight downward gaze because what she tended to do is kind of extend. And then she got to the bottom. She would have to go back into a little, not flexion, but she'd have to go back to neutral and it would shift her center of mass forward. So all I did was cue her to slightly change her head angle for bench press. All I did was give her one simple cue on wrist position with unracking. And then for deadlift, I gave her one simple cue for lockout for improving her kind of shoulder position at lockout by pretty much just cueing her to make sure to keep her chin and her chest up. That is it. That is all I gave her. I did not. And, and so that's going to kind of lead to the answers here, but, um, who if uh, I think it's going to lead to what we're all going to say here is there's probably never a way to truly optimize technique. And if someone is already incredibly strong and world-class, they likely got there for a reason. And there's very, very minute changes that you want to make because I'm, I'm going to tell you if, if how many times people message me and be like, when are like, especially when I first started coaching Sean, are you going to, are you going to fix Sean's technique? I don't know how many people that message me that um, or people message me like saying, Hey, some people ask me at the gym, like, do you know, if Steve's going to fix, fix Sean's technique. I'm like, 
what what do you want me to fix? Like, of course, they want me to make him bench normal. They want me to make him conventional deadlift, probably. And then they want to make me bring his stance within. But there's a reason Sean is as strong as he is. It's because of what he does, not in in light of it. Yeah, that's exactly what my answer was going to be. And it was going to be extremely short because I always just say in situations like this, the question to ask yourself is, is the technique that you're viewing as poor holding them back or is it making them who they are? And with a really strong lifter, it's probably making them who they are. If they're not defying some of those key principles like the center of mass, um, you know, bar path, things like that, which are just very rudimentary, um, you probably have to assume that the flexion in Natalie Richards' upper back is only helping her, not hurting her, right? If you try to fix it, you're probably going to do more harm than good. So, yeah, that's pretty much my answer is just to give you a question to ask yourselves when it comes time to have that conversation with somebody. Yeah, I was going to say, so I look at a few things, especially when it's a stronger lifter, but it's like, but even they're not necessarily a creational lifter in general. It's like, okay, is what they're doing uh, going to be sustainable beyond the point they're at currently? So meaning even though they've been able to use this technique to get to this certain point of strength, does it seem like this is the limit of what that position can do for them and can cleaning up and refining a little bit, allow them to get further. Um, the second one is, do I think they could get away with potentially doing more workload if they were in a more quote unquote efficient uh, position? And then the third one is, do I think whatever positions they're in are somehow having to do with maybe some discomfort or pains that they're feeling? And let me be clear, I'm not saying any particular technique or positions automatically going to hurt you. It's not true. I like the way that, that Sean has put it before in the past where it's like, you know, for each person, you might only be able to handle so much stimulus in a certain position before something kind of gives. I'm kind of paraphrasing how you, how you put it. Um, but for example, if, you know, for some people, they might be able to get away with doing more reps or more weight at lower exertions if they're not as flexed over their deadlift relative to if they are. It's not true for everybody, but it just kind of depends, right? Um, I have two examples. Um, one is Jamar, where we didn't so much change his technique, but we did refine a lot of things. If you look at Jamar's old squad before he came to me, um, he would hit the whole way more aggressively. He would sit back a lot more um, and almost try to like force himself out of the hole, almost like like using just like force himself up like with his torso. And things we kind of worked on with him was like, hey, man, control your descent a little bit. Uh, work on really filling the ground with your rooting. We switched him out of, you know, squat shoes to flats. So we could work on that. Uh, teaching him how to stack, teach him how to kind of let his knees track over his toes a little bit more as he sits back versus just sitting back aggressively. So little things where we're not changing the whole dynamic how he squats, but it's kind of like just refining things for him a little bit. And once we started doing that, you know, it went from 700, a 700 pound squat being, you know, the, you know, kind of like the goal to now he's breaking through like all these plateaus and stuff like that. And there's other variables that go into it, but his squad now is just a lot cleaner, it's more controlled, and it feels more consistent. That would be the big thing for him is he would find whenever his fatigue was low, the way he was squatting was fine because fatigue is low. So we can kind of just work through it despite how inefficient the movement may have been. But when fatigue is higher, he can't fight through it the same way. Now his squat is more consistent in regards to fatigue just because his position in and out the hole looks the same just from refining a few things. Uh, but another example of somebody where we actually did change quite a bit is Jordan. Jordan came to me. She already had a very, very strong deadlift, um, but she was in a lot of, a lot of, you know, a lot of pain. She could not handle a lot of workload. She was only pulling once a week because pulling once a week was beating her up a lot. And granted, part of that had to do with the workloads she was doing with her previous coach. But even when she first came to me, she just couldn't really handle a whole lot. She very much yanked the bar, was excessively flexed over. Um, just a lot of things that we typically don't really want to see 
in a sumo deadlift. So we changed a lot of things with Jordan's technique to just make it more efficient. And not only did it help her feel better and healthier, but it allowed her to get stronger too. So I think the big difference though is like what Matt was alluding to is that in Jordan's case, it's like, okay, you've gotten to this point of strength with this position just because you're a strong person, but this positioning is not helping you be strong. It's actually limiting where your strength could actually be. Like we don't even, like without changing anything programming wise, we're just cleaning up a lot of stuff with her position, her deadlift, like already already is better and stronger, right? Um, whereas with somebody like so with Jamar was kind of just refining and tinkering a few things. But then if you 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 know, and or even someone like Bob, where Bob's form on everything was like very interesting when he first came to me. But he still was strong with those positions, but you know, teaching how to refine that. But then if I take someone like Ashton, we didn't change a whole lot with his technique just because there really wasn't a need to. He's it was already strong as he was. So asking those questions about, okay, is this limiting their top end strength potential? Is this causing them workload issues? Those are the things that I look at before I make the determination. Yeah. I don't want to reiterate anything that, that you guys have said. So I'm just going to give my, I guess, like three-step process here is like, I'm going to look at progress. I'm going to look at durability and I'm going to look at success rate in competition or success rate at the top end. Um, so, you know, are we consistently making progress with the, the technique that we're using, assuming that the programming is taken care of? Um, are we able to durably train and we don't have some sort of limiting factor like what Marcellus was alluding to with, with Jordan, where it's like the way that she's lifting is preventing her from getting in more meaningful work. And then the final one is, is the success rate piece, which is something that is, I don't think has been mentioned just yet, um, which is basically like if you have a, a last warmup, let's say, that based on its speed and how it moved is indicative of being able to hit whatever weight after that. But you more often than not, or maybe just at a rate that is deemed concerning, fail that next jump that you go to because there's some sort of technical breakdown. You know, like if, if we're talking about someone who's like really rounded over in a deadlift, maybe it does give them that, that you know, it feels comfortable, it's not pain, painful, and at lower intensities, they can crush it. But every single time they go near 98, 99, 100%, it could go either way in terms of them being able to lock it out, either because they get stuck on their legs or their balance, or it's just too drastic of a position to kind of unravel yourself from. That's usually one of the things that I'm going to look at. And ultimately, like if you have rapport build up, built up with an athlete, or maybe an athlete just has a, a track record prior to you where they check off all these boxes fairly well that's going to be a situation where I'm, I'm unlikely to change things, right? Because the only way that you would ever know, the only way that you could ever reliably, you know, and again, you can never predict injury, but the only way you could ever reliably say whether or not someone's lifting technique could be safe going forward is if they have a history of it being safe. If you have years of lifting in a certain fashion, chances are you've built up the tissue tolerance and the structural tolerance to continue to lift that way. If from the programming side of things, you have things dialed in and they have years of consistent progress lifting a certain way. Not really a reason to change it. If you can load 10 kilos on top of a second attempt and the second attempt looked like you had another 10 kilos and you're making that lift nine out of 10 times, you have a reliable form of technique. You know, and I, and I definitely consider myself one of the, the best technique coaches because I've just worked with a lot of different athletes. I've done a lot of different technique stuff myself. Um, but they're on the other side of the coin. There are plenty of times where I'm not going to touch anything. So I think a good example that Marcel has kind of said is like Bob versus Ashton. 
Both really strong, but we have to look at actual experience. Ashton came to you after, what, like eight years of plus of powerlifting? Where Bob had just been powerlifting for like a year and a half? Like, it was an entirely different, their situation, even though they're incredibly strong. I think a lot of times people think, oh, someone's incredibly strong. They're an advanced lifter. That doesn't mean they're an advanced lifter. Strength doesn't mean... I mean, I have some people who are 300 dots who are an advanced lifter in the sense of like their training age and their progression rates and their technique and what we're going to be doing. So um, not always using strength as the key metric of what is advanced beginner and intermediate and how you're going to approach it, but looking at actual experience and whatnot. So um, that one didn't take as long. We might be able to touch one more real quick. I know Matt really wants to do the accessory one. Yeah, sure. Let's go accessory. So, if someone constantly sandbags their accessory work, I'm, I'm going to say outside of maybe telling them, like giving them advice on why we need to not sandbag it, obviously, because like here's X, Y, and Z of how this is going to benefit you. Um, outside of that, of like just the, the psychological aspect of it and conveying them the importance, <coughs> what are some techniques we can do maybe in the programming side of things I'll, I'll frame it that way to be able to get someone to take their accessory work more seriously you manipulate them you make the pro you write in the program things that are not actually truthful i've done this before where like if you have people sandbagging you know you can write in just like rpe 10 like i literally am telling you to take this to rpe 10 and then when you ask them for a video and you see it and it's not truly to failure, there is now no deniability of something like that. Because if you, you write six, seven, eight, someone can go through a set like that and not have this like high state of alarm in their head of it being a big set because their baseline understanding of, of what pushing an accessory is is obviously much lower if they're a chronic accessory sandbagger, right? But everyone has an understanding of what pushing to true failure is. So even if your intent as the coach is to not have them go to true failure, you know, as a, as a long-term strategy, for their, their accessory work, right? This is the opportunity where you actually force them to confront this, this issue without having to, you know, maybe you do have conversations and they continue to do it, but giving them the opportunity either to go to failure or go to what they think is failure is going to illuminate for both of you where that actually lies. Um, I know that this is something I've made a post about it before. I know Matt's made a post about it before. I think with like a hack squat, cause he loves his hack squat um, about giving AMRAPs as well. Um, because especially with accessories, especially if they're very externally stabilized accessories, what failure feels like is a whole different beast compared to the main movement. <laughs> um, so yeah, programming AMRAPs. Another one, which, which I think someone had asked me a question about it on a Q and a the other day. I didn't see the post, but I'm going to assume that's what this is. Someone said something about Joe. I assume Joe Stanek making a post about lower set counts for hypertrophy, assumedly because of the whole like, oh, the diminishing returns of hypertrophy after you stimulate. Is that is that the post that was made? I'm just assuming here. I'd never seen anything. Does anyone know? No? Okay. Well, at any rate. I don't, well, I don't think he was going off of the that whole craze right now. I think he was more just stating that he more often than not has found benefit from maybe just doing two sets versus doing – four to five sets of some well, accessory work. So that, yeah, that's, so that's what I was going to say is that if you give people the prescription of like, oh, I'm doing four sets of this, it's like very easy to just pick a comfort weight and coast through it. Whereas if you prescribe them fewer sets, and again, you could maybe even still be implementing this like 
you know, higher rated RP that we talked about. But if you just give them few sets to work with, I think people mentally just have this idea of, okay, these are the only two sets I'm doing with this movement, or this is the only set I'm doing with this movement. And they put more into it. I mean, I'm guilty of this. I'm sure you guys have been guilty of it in the past as well, where you you kind of get a, a comfort with certain weights on accessories, it could be a leg press, it could even be, you know, a tricep push down where it's like, you're not really able to like, add another stack every time you fucking do a tricep push down. So you just go through with the same the same thing over and over again. And it's it's easier to do that when you know you have, you know, four sets to complete for the day, you're just trying to get in and get out. So yeah, bringing the set count down could be a, a mental game to play as well. I agree with everything said, like, obviously, AMRAPs are a great tool to really see where somebody's at um as well as uh you know the reduced set counts you know fewer sets you're probably pushing harder the only thing i'll really add to what sean and matt have already said is i like utilizing top sets on accessories too um like high exertion low rep top sets so i'm talking like top set of five at rp like eight or nine and then after that if there's proceeding sets maybe like one to two dropbacks it'll just be like oh with five percent less or ten percent less just because what i've found with a lot of clients is when they kind of see that, like, oh, I have a top set of this, like they'll just push that set really, really hard. And then if I then am prescribing what they have to do after that by controlling the percent drop from that, I can almost ensure that they're actually kind of hitting close to those RPs that I want. And then from there, just ensuring some type of progression, like, okay, uh, add five pounds from here each week of the block or 10 pounds, depending on what the movement is. And I find that that works really well because if you can just get them to, if they just push that first set, even if it's a little bit under, let's say it's not a true like eight or nine, but it's at least close then so long as you're ensuring that, okay, now you have to go up like five or 10 pounds from here each week without the block, you're going to get that objective load progression over time that you're wanting. So that'd be the only thing I have to add without repeating what both these gentlemen already said. So I think the top set thing's underrated because <clears throat> how many how many coaches program top sets for SBD, but then just give a generic three by eight at eight RPE for their accessories? Um, if we think that's the the meta, and the best approach for squat bench and deadlift how do how why would we not think that couldn't work for accessories as well so yeah i'm a big fan of that um so outside of the things that you mentioned i think another thing uh, and because a lot of that is more talking about like either one someone not understanding proximity of failure maybe never having an idea of how to push it to that or people just sandbagging that proximity failure um the one other issue a lot of times is time frame if there's if you're going through a long session, a lot of times people either one legitimately because of work life balance and stuff like that, they don't have time. And so they sandbag their accessories um, or the fact that after a two hour SBD day, they're just not really that they don't have much energy left uh, is being cognizant of time frame on days and then making sure to manage accessory work and, and, and allocate them throughout the week based on when you think that they're going to have the most energy and the most mental focus to be able to allocate them. If, if not, even if, if the person's motivated to do it, I have some people that like doing accessory work, but on certain days they're just exhausted. Maybe they're going to have an accessory day. That's the fifth day. And they're just going to only, they're going to get to go bro out on that day and do a back bicep and tricep day or something. Um, the next one is B uh, is objective accessory work that means something. Uh, I like weighted dips for multiple reasons. One of the reasons like I like weighted dips because I can start pinning my athletes against each other. Marcellus, I know, does the same thing. I don't know how intentional it is. Mine is very intentional when I do it. No, it's extremely intentional. Extremely. Because they now care about the objective load. They care about it. And they start wanting to push it because they, it, and so it, people might say, oh, it, it becomes generic and Marcellus and Steve are just pushing weighted dips. And oh, now everyone's going to do weighted dips. 
guess what? Your athletes are probably going to push it a bit more. I talked about that on like the why some accessory works are deemed magic is because pe people have buy-in and they start to have this objective low that they can then kind of, they see a lot of other athletes doing the same movement and can be able to compare themselves. They start to be a little bit more motivated by that exercise. And the last one is just bang for your buck exercises. Again, why some accessory movements are deemed as magic. They have good bang for the buck. If, I, if, if I'm going to give seven accessory movements and by the third or fourth one, the athlete's just not going to be motivated by accessory, it's probably I'm getting too long-winded with a bunch of isolation stuff versus giving them something that's just going to be a bit more compound and bang for their buck and, and kill three birds with one stone. I'm, gonna, I'm just for the sake of it, I'm going to use weighted dips. I, I could do uh, a chest press, uh lateral raises or, or let's say a dumbbell shoulder press and then tricep extensions. Maybe the athlete only takes one of those serious and then the next two they're going to kind of sandbag just from a time frame element versus I can give them weighted dips and kill three birds with one stone. You could argue maybe that it's not as optimal, but if I'm looking at getting the most out of it, maybe that they're going to be able to push weighted dips because of all the things that are mentioned and also the time frame element, they're going to get the pec anterior shoulder and tricep activation and, and, and stress and, and hypertrophy from that. Awesome. So, uh, yeah, that's the last thing I'll throw out there. Um, before we get going, we got to do a commercial gym story. Uh, I, do, do you all, even, I mean, I don't even think Sean and Matt listen to two white lights. Marcellus does because he's, 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 uh, required to based off of contractual obligations. As I don't athletes. listen. I'm not going to lie. Wait, am I really? <laughs> Cause I do listen to all of them, but is that true? It's you're not. No, no. I'm just oh, joking. Yeah, but I I, 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 and Matt and Sean probably don't even know about my commercial gym stories, which is the greatest part of nope. Two White Lights. Nope. But I do have and, some good ones. Oh, I've, I've gone. I have a whole list and we're going through them. So today, my commercial gym story. Let's see. I had it. Which one is it going to be? I got to mark this one. I did this one last time. The man with polio. I had to do that one last time. Okay. Uh, where was that? I just had one. Why am I losing it? Okay. Swingers Club. No, no. Well, no, it's it's only if you guys got one, sure you can go for one real quick. But I've got to brew one of mine. I'm just going through all of my commercial gym stories since uh, I think. Well, yeah, Matt, you did commercial gym stuff. Marcel's did too. I don't know if Sean was ever great. Well, I'm just saying I have a lot of stories since I spent seven years in commercial gyms and managing a lot of, them. especially the management aspect. You learn everything that goes down. Oh, okay. Well, if anyone else has one after me, they can go. But I'm gonna. I got my story. First day on the job, I stole a strongman tire. So, <clears throat> first day I ever showed up to work. I get there, and one of the trainers is like, hey, on the way to work, um, there was this huge, like, 500-pound tire just sitting at the side of the road. We should just go grab it because we, they train strongman. And so, we're like, okay. So, four of us go. Um Fun part about me, this is also back when I had to wear my chic belt for bicep curls. So I brought my chic belt to help load the strongman tire, which I did indeed wear in loading that into the back of the truck. So we, we start driving. I did not know we were driving 50 minutes away. Like this was like a trek out in the middle of, I mean, I'm from, this is the St. Louis area. We were no longer like in the St. Louis area. We were out in countryside. We get to this spot. This is not just a strongman tire at the side of the road. This is a strongman tire directly in front of this very sketchy house that says no trespassing. And we're like, um, yeah, this, I don't know if we're supposed to take this. Like someone lives here. And so we sat there for about five or 10 minutes and finally decided, eh, like we kind of like looked in the windows. We're like, maybe this is vacant. Like, I don't know if anyone lives here. And so finally we took it. We loaded it in the back of the truck. So 
<clears throat> we did that, but it wasn't very stable. So we drove like 10 more minutes to this guy's house. We got something to tie it down. <clears throat> cool. We're heading back. We have to drive past this house. As we do, we see a man with a gun just standing right where that tire used to be, just staring down. And so we stopped. Well, we kind of debated. We're like, should we just keep driving? But then we're like, okay, the tire's hanging out of this car because the, the tailgate's not even closed. It didn't all fit. Um, and he can see our license plate. So we, we stop at the side of the road and we all get out. And one of the guy goes, were you wanting this tire? And the guy goes, yes. And so an entire situation occurs because the guy is not happy that we stole his tire. We found out that the tire was there specifically because people apparently would drive through his lawn to cut through the intersection or to not have to go through the intersection. So he put it there to be able to block people from driving through his grass. Um, and I think we were there for like 15 minutes or so just discussing it with him because he was not very happy. And we finally came to an agreement that uh, the, the guy who lived close was going to come back with some railroad ties, create a little bit of a border, and he would allow us to take that tire. So we didn't take, we did indeed take that tire and bring it back. But yeah, that was my first ever day as a personal trainer. I was really hoping you were going to tell us that someone got shot. This ended way too well. No. <laughs> a couple shows ago, I talked about when the gun got pulled out at me in the gym, but no, I never got shot. We did. While wearing a belt to help lift the tire with three other guys. <laughs> All right. If you guys got your best commercial gym story ever, shoot. <laughs> Don't use me as a guinea pig here. But I I mean, I uh, I mean, Matt is familiar with uh, with the Gold's Gym in Deer Park. And uh, they're basically like if you had to think of like the mecca of like mentally unstable, roided up, forty-five-year-old divorced Italian men. Yeah, <laughs> it's a prison yard. And there's this guy who used to train. Well, he actually still trains there. This guy Justin, and I don't feel bad using his name because no one knows who he is, and he's definitely not listening to this podcast. But he was insane like he would be one of those dudes i don't know if you guys have ever seen people like this but it's like they have their hoodie on and then they have the hat over the hoodie i don't know if you guys have ever seen people like that but he would he would walk he would walk around the gym hoodie then the hat over it and like very clearly like coked out some days the dude just had a temper and there was one day that he, he always acted like he he ran the gym Right. And uh, he would tell stories to people completely unsolicitedly about how he was like a school security guard and he would like fuck the substitute teachers who like, it was just it was absolute pandemonium. The dude is completely unhinged. And there was one day that like the oldest man who would ever step foot into that gym, like probably like 75 years old, left a five five pound plate on the tibia tibialis anterior raise machine. <laughs> like it's just the most inconsequential gym infraction of all time. <laughs> and this dude goes, Hey, who the fuck left these plates on the machine? And this old dude just like turns around, like doesn't even have the energy left to say that he left the place probably seconds away from death. And <laughs> he, in the middle of the gym, like everybody stops he gets in this like 75-year-old dude's grill and he goes, the next time you leave these plates on the fucking machine, I'm going to beat you to death. And we're all just like, oh my God, dude. Like, 
there, there are other days. Yeah, this guy was out of his mind. There are days where like you would, you know, you'd have your, your gym bag on a bench that you were using and he would just like kick a yoga ball at your bag and like knock it off the bench. Like the dude just thought that this was his playground. He still trains honestly, there, but whenever I'm home... Honestly, I, I, just based off of that, knowing that fact, I think Corrupted Strengths has sent him an email saying that he is banned from Corrupted Strength because of the, his aggression and, and threats. His his uh, six degrees of separation from Corrupted? Yes. I mean, I, I think that's warranted. Mm-hmm. I think he should be provisionally banned from the USAPL. Yes, also provisionally banned from the USAPL. Let's hear it. Well, considering, I was going to say, considering none of you have listened to the other commercial gym stories, there there is some good ones prior. You should go look, you should go listen to them, if, if nothing, just to give us listens. But there's been some really good ones. I'll do this one. I'll, I'll make it very quick. I, I don't even know if I can say the name of the gym because I don't know if this would screw me over for talking about But you all know where I train at currently. This happened at this gym. Um and this gym hasn't always been as, you know, big and popular as it is now. So this is maybe like, this is like, well, at this point, I guess two years ago, it was from 2023. Um, and one of the complaints that a lot of people had about the gym is that it wasn't very clean. Like it wasn't very well kept in terms of like cleanliness and stuff like that. Uh, so they hired um, an interesting group to keep the, uh, keep the gym area clean, like come through and clean the morning and the afternoons. And it's this, like this heavyset black dude. And he's kind of just monitoring the people who are actually cleaning. And all the people who are cleaning are, to make sure I'm being politically correct, they're all intellectually disabled um, as far as the people that are actually doing the cleaning. Uh, <laughs> and there was one in particular who was very interesting because really, really nice kid, but he would flirt with like every single like female that he ran into. And it's this thing where it's like, okay, if you listen to him talking around him enough and you just watch the entire group of the custodians you can tell okay all of the they're all intellectually disabled so even when he comes over and he's flirting or whatever like you know the, the girls try to be nice and you know the, the guys were all kind of just like you know it is what it is um and this one in particular this dude was strong i'm talking like the best example i can give you about how strong this guy is is um y'all know like the hammer strength row machines and stuff right okay he's going around and he's like trying to like mop the area around it and there's one, mind you, it's fully, it's got plates on it. It's got plates loaded on the rack and shit like that. And he can't get to it. And he's getting really frustrated. And he ends up, he literally just physically grabs it and just pushes the whole thing. Like, like a couple feet. So he can start mopping this shit, right? So it's insane. Like me and Michael were watching, we're losing. And we're just like, did that just happen? And we're like, maybe it's lighter than what we think. And we, we, I really went over to it afterwards and tried to see if I can move it to see if it's just lighter than what I I'm like, there's no way. So mind you, that's how strong this dude is. Well, of course, you know, the, the, the gym starts getting new memberships and stuff like that. Um, and, and there's a reason this custodian crew isn't around anymore. I think this is part of it. And basically... This dude's doing, uh, he's doing, I'm trying to remember, he's doing like some type of something on the turf with his girlfriend. Like they're doing like these little like uh, boyfriend, girlfriend, partner workouts, I think for TikTok or some stupid shit like that. Um, and the, this dude, who once again is a custodian, clean stuff like that, but he's very flirtatious with women. So the guy walks over to, I guess, get the camera ready for their skit. And the, this, this particular kid, he comes over, he starts talking to the girl and he starts flirting with her while the dude's recording. Um, and this dude, once again, these are new, newer people. They don't know anything about this guy. They don't know anything about the intellectual disability. So he comes over, he's pissed. And he's like, he's like, yo, why are you talking to my girl? Why are you flirting with my girl? And he's just going off. And we're all like, at first you can't really tell what's going on. You can see that they're kind of talking, but you can tell what the interaction is. 
but then he starts raising his voice more. So you, you turn and you realize kind of what's happening. And it's like, oh shit, oh no, this is awful. Like we gotta we gotta stop this before it goes down. But it's a little too late because as I start to walk over to let him kind of know what the situation is, he just starts like trying to get aggressive with this kid. And when I tell y'all, uh, this dude, this dude, because he's a he's a pretty jack dude. He's maybe like like five foot ten or whatever, pretty big dude, but dro. This this intellectually disabled custodian manhandled the fuck out of this guy. It was hilarious. Like he's trying to swing on his stuff and he's just grabbing him and just holding him and not letting him move and stuff like that. And the whole thing was just it was ridiculous. And of course, you know, the actual staff from the front comes, they break it up and stuff like that. And then I end up eventually like the dude's like, like, no, Maze over here talking to my girl, and like he's like he's being disrespectful, blah, blah, blah. And I end up eventually being able to talk. I was like, bro, he's he's uh intellectually disabled. He's he doesn't know what's going on. And it was it was just it was hilarious, bro. Because I've I've never seen someone so jacked just get manhandled by someone like not like not even half his side, but the dude was just strong. And and, and the thing is, I like I wasn't surprised at this strength because I saw this dude move an entire Hammersmith row machine several feet by just pushing it. So it was it was that was hilarious. You were like, dude, I know that he's flirting with your girl, but I watched this man pick the Cybex leg press up over his head last week. Like, please do not do anything you might regret. All right. Well, if we have anyone still listening, our true fans, we'll, we'll, we sometimes do a little fun thing. You repost that you listened. Uh, I don't know how many. We, we still got more commercial gym stories incoming, but we've probably done 20 plus now. If you've got a favorite one. Reshare the episode on your story and then say which one is your favorite commercial gym story of all time. And the correct answer is the Martanza one. <laughs> I think that's the winner for me. <laughs> all right. I don't even remember how Angelo closes this stuff out, but uh, we'll talk about like upcoming two white lights. We got a lot coming because we're going to have Sheffield, PA Nats, Arnold all back to back to back. I know we got a couple episodes looking to get Mike on. Uh, to do a round table um, for people who don't know Bryce Lewis is now in charge of live streaming and uh, media production for USAPL and has some really cool things planned. I think we hope to get him on at some point, but I uh, want to thank Marcellus, Matt and Sean for coming on, taking their time to be able to do this round table. I hope everyone else enjoys it. Uh, we got to head uh, Sean on so that we can kind of check off the unofficial co-host for the year. So he doesn't hate us anymore. See if we get him back on or else I think, or, or we're just going to do like a, we should, we should have done like a Matt Damon thing. Uh, what's it called? Is it Jimmy Kimmel and Matt Damon to Sean? Every single, we, we always have him on, but then it's too late. It's the end of the episode. Have you ever seen the Jimmy Kimmel and Matt Damon thing? I hate Jimmy Kimmel. I oh, perfect. hate Jimmy Kimmel. So I definitely have not seen it. Matt knows why. Got it. <laughs> Never mind then. Joke not landed. All right. We're going to end it. Gonna end Check it. out powerlifting now. Till next time. Peace.